I should like to tell you that I have seen some of the experiments shown in this film actually carried out at the All-Russian Physiological Congress. As you can imagine, technique is everything. This is Liberty and Justice for All with Jack and Paul. On episode seven of the podcast, we have Alex Flint from the Alliance for Market Solutions, Alex Brill from the American Enterprise Institute, and Nick Loris from the Heritage Foundation. On this week's episode, we have a robust conversation about the carbon tax. Hope you enjoy. On the podcast today, we have Alex Flint from the Alliance for Market Solutions, Alex Brill from the American Enterprise Institute, and Nick Loris from the Heritage Foundation. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for being here, guys. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us on. So, Alex and Alex, um, we've had lots of conversations, Alex Flint, in the past on carbon tax. Sort of give us your perspective on it. What, why do you think, um, what do you think the problem is? Why is the carbon tax the solution? Sort of, let's start the conversation with that. Yeah, so this is Alex Flint. I mean, I'll sort of give you my background on this and why I came at, to this. I, Jack, I think when you and I first met, I was at the Senate Appropriations Committee. I was doing the budgets for the U.S. nuclear weapons program, and I was spending a lot of time at the DOE National Laboratories. And I remember being with some of the scientists talking about, actually, we were talking about how to model the hydrodynamics inside nuclear weapons and what the software code for supercomputers would look like. And to validate the code, um, the, the engineers were putting old weather data in and then seeing if the code accurately predicted what the weather did 24 hours, seven days, a year later. It's, it's hydrodynamic systems. And we, that was all in the interest of making sure that we could be responsible stewards of our nuclear weapons. And I remember one day sitting there saying, well, how do we know that the codes are right? And they said, well, we're, we're using this weather modeling to, to do this and we're validating against historic weather. And, you know, the interesting thing is the weather's changing. Now, that was just a group of nuclear weapons guys. There was nothing about energy or climate change or anything else like that. That was 1996, I think. And I've always had a lot of respect for scientists, like the kids who were the smartest kid in eighth grade and went to the special high school and went to the technical schools and spent years studying science. And I've also understood the way scientific research works and that there's always debate involved in it. And so as the debate about climate change has evolved and developed, I've followed it closely. I've been very respectful of many of the people involved in it. And the bottom line is that since the mid-1990s, I've recognized that climate change is occurring. And I think uh, it's something that I feel that we have a responsibility to face head, head on. Like, if this is happening, and at this point I think it's irresponsible to say it's not going to happen, the most likely the consensus of the science is it is happening, I think regardless of sort of politics, we need to look at it as something that we need to prepare for. I happen to be a conservative. I'm a lifelong conservative. I care about fiscal issues and a whole bunch of other things. Um, but for me, the, what's been really interesting is a lot of members of my party have been in sort of climate denialism. I've always thought, okay... If this is happening, what do I believe we should do about it? And that's what's brought me to this. I mean, I've been on a journey where I've worked in the energy business for several decades now. 
always with an eye towards what are we, how are we, do we actually address this problem if this is a real problem? And, and I'll tell you, to sort of cut to the chase, I've looked at what one can achieve through regulations. I think they're horribly ineffective and, and too costly. I've looked at and been involved in some of the subsidy discussions. Um, I think subsidies work, but I think when we're running trillion-dollar-year deficits, it's irresponsible to think about spending more money on something like this. And so I end up being a carbon tax proponent. Okay. Uh, my view is that we need to establish a market that assigns a cost for emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That's the conservative solution to this. So I don't mean to go on, but for me, it's a, it's a core conservative ethic of what's the responsible thing to do in the face of the risk of climate change. So you've laid out sort of where you see the problem and what you think is a conservative solution. I want to delve in a little bit more on to, into what is the problem. You use the term climate change. I think that there's a reasonable, a, a, a person who looks at the data and the science would conclude that there's some level of climate change happening over long periods of time. I think the question I have um, is, we need to, uh, don't we need to be careful to, uh, to disconnect natural climate change and man-made climate change. And it's nailing down what is the man-made piece that really is the public policy question. So I think, I mean, that's a very interesting question because there is natural change that occurs over very long periods of time. There is now change that's occurring on a much shorter time frame due to the increase in greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. I mean, I, I suppose it's interesting to say what part is, is man-responsible part, what part is nature responsible for. I, but I do think the opening to this is it's changing the, the, you know, the IPCC forecast last week was that the sea level is going to be up a meter in 2100. So, it, it, and by the way, I would say that most of that change is caused by man. But I actually think the more interesting question is, what are we going to do about the fact that the sea level is coming up? That's the really important public policy discussion we have to deal with right well, now. Well, let's, I'm not so willing to move into that yet. All right. Let's move into this question of man-made versus not man-made. Let's look a little bit into what the science seems to show, what the models seem to show. And this is probably where our other Alex and Nick can probably join in and, and shed some light on this. Well, this is the other Alex. Um, uh, let me just start just by saying very briefly uh, um, how I came to this issue, and then I can sort of speak to, to my views for briefly. Um, different from my colleague Alex Flint, I d actually didn't come to this first from the science perspective. I came to this as a tax guy um, from a public finance perspective. Um, I spent a long t um, time researching tax policies broadly and generally in time um, on Capitol Hill working on tax policy and, and tax reform. And more recently uh, have, have come to recognize the consensus that that Alex was speaking of um, among climate scientists that there that there is climate change that's occurring. Um, I think it's an interesting question: what's causing that climate change? And I, I it may be a mix of, of man-made actions and other natural tendencies. I'm not sure it's that important to disaggregate that effect um, because what 
what concerns me is the consequence of this change. So sort of instead of pointing fingers about who's to blame, the question is is the, the, that this change that's occurring, I, I believe it's man-made, um, or largely so, um, is causing um, economic burdens and distortions uh, for our economy and for, uh, for other economies. And the question is, is, you know, what, if anything, can and should we do about it? Um, I think that what we should do is we should see this as an opportunity to make our tax code better, um, and to address these challenges in the least costly way possible. This, I know that I, I, I had said earlier I wanted to hear from Nicholas, but I just I need to respond to that, this disaggregation issue, because I think it's critical, especially when we're talking in terms of public policy. I mean, public policy dictates what people can do. So whenever you're talking about climate change happening, some aspect of it being natural, some aspect of it being man-made. It's only the man-made piece that public policy can address. Public policy can help you respond to the natural piece, but in terms of 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 changing it, it's and and because I think from our research the economic impact of the of, of the public policy to address climate change, I think it's important to understand what portion of that change is a result of man-made activity, because that's the only piece that you're going to be able to address through public policy. So I disagree. So um, if there's a, a hurricane or a tornado or a natural disaster that has nothing to do with any any actions that we've undertaken, but if there's a disaster, um, we use public policy to address that, right? We have FEMA and we have other programs. We have you know local responses and community responses. It's not all government responses. We have community responses. But we respond to the consequences of local weather effects, um, and we we'd help those in need um, to rebuild, and we ensure, and we, we help reconstruct those projects um, that, that have, have been destroyed or, or, or provide other types of public policies in responses in response to that. Climate change, I think, is, is similar in that regard. If there's consequences to the changing climate, um, if we can affect those changes, and which might mean un, you know, maybe we need to stop doing some of the things that we're doing that's causing it, but it could also be that we need a public policy um, to, uh, to build a seawall uh, to protect a community, and we need to, f- to finance that. Or we may need a, a public policy um, to, to address the consequences that it's having on local communities. A carbon tax um, can um, alter the greenhouse gas emissions um, in a way that improves the climate or slows the cha- the rate of change. And if that's welfare enhancing to our population, that's a policy we should pursue. And Jack, I do feel like a part of the reason people sometimes ask what portion is man-made and what part, portion is natural is because they have an inclination to embrace not responding because some portion of it is natural. The, the reality is the vast majority of the climate change we've experienced in the last several decades is result is the result of man from the emissions from the, the energy sector. And that as we look out into the balance of this century, we have a really serious problem coming our way. As we see economic growth around the world, as we see population growth, as we see increased access to energy, what we are seeing today foreshadows an even larger problem. So it uh, to me, it's irresponsible to say some portion of it's caused by nature. As a result, we're not going to address it. No, the majority of what we're seeing today is caused by man's actions, and it is going to get worse at some point in the future. Yeah, this is Nick here. Um, now I'm going to disagree with my boss, which is always a dangerous thing to do on a podcast. But uh, I tend to agree with Alex Brill when he said that 
it doesn't matter to me whether it's man-made or uh, naturally occurring. If we know that sea levels are rising, we need to do something about it and have some sort of public public policy response, no matter uh, what the case may be. And I know you're reaching for the microphone, but hold on for a second. Um, where I disagree is when we start attaching every single event related to climate to man-made emissions. I mean, it's clear that the climate is changing. It's clear that man-made activity has led to an increasing of warming. I think the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change attributes at least half the warming since 1950 to human activity. Um, but they also say that we're not seeing an increasing trend in extreme weather events. And so I think the uh, climate catastrophism does a disservice to what the public policy response should be to. And you can look at trends in wildfires and tornadoes, um, but both on the uh, amount of naturally occurring events. Um, I think we call them natural disasters in part for a reason because they are naturally occurring, um, but also the intensity of some of these storms. I know a lot of people say that future storms may be more intense because of man-made warming, um, but there's also evidence that suggests that might not be the case. So I think when it comes to the climate science, we need to have some humility in what we know versus what we don't know, um, especially as it um, attributes to what a doubling of greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere are going to be. You know, some say that's going to be one and a half to two degrees Celsius or even less. Some say it's going to be three to four and a half degrees Celsius. Those have big implications for what the future costs of global warming will be. And then we can have a policy discussion around those things. So it's interesting that you're, so you're, what you're proposing, Nick, is that there's climate change and we should do something about it. You're associating yourself with uh, the, the, the position of Alex Brill and Alex Flint. So I'm curious from your perspective, um, how does a carbon tax fix these things? If, if, if you are opposed to disaggregate, disaggregating what we know is human and what we know is natural, and you think we should do something like a carbon tax, how does a carbon tax fix that? Because the carbon tax would go after that human piece of it. Um, so I think that whenever you associate a a seawall as a response, that's decidedly different, a different public policy question than a carbon tax, because the carbon tax doesn't go after the nat that natural piece. That goes after decidedly the man-made piece. Well, it goes after trying to avert warming, uh, which leads to a sea level increase. I'm not for a carbon tax. That's not the climate policy that I'm for. Which climate policy are you for? I'm for... Right now, adaptation to me is the, the strongest, um, most effective, um, both from a practical standpoint, but also a cost-effective standpoint, to um, reducing any type of fatalities or risks from a changing climate. Uh, and then I think also, if we're looking at mitigation, which I think is a, a very difficult challenge because you're talking about a collective action problem, and that's where I jump off the carbon tax bandwagon, because even if we implemented a significant carbon tax in the United States, most of the future emissions are going to come from the developing world. I think 92% of future emission growth is going to come from non-OECD countries. So if you're talking about internalizing an externality in the form of reducing warming, I don't see a carbon tax scenario where the EU 
and the United States and the rest of the developed world get on board with some sort of carbon tax, even if it is border adjusted, that it results in any meaningful abated warming or slowing of sea level rise? Well, I'll, I'll agree and disagree with a couple of things that were just said. First, I, I will definitely agree that um, uh, not every hurricane and not every warm day that we experience is attributable to climate change. Uh, we have weather, and weather is volatile. Um, I wouldn't point to the um, the evidence around tornadoes because I don't think that the theory would suggest we should that climate change would lead to more tornadoes. It would lead to more hurricanes doesn't mean that in the absence of climate change, we'd have no hurricanes, of course. Um, um, I would say also that, you know, with respect um, to this international question, this global question, I think that's a really important issue uh, for policymakers to, to wrestle with. And as a carbon tax advocate, it's, a, it's an issue that I, I think about a lot. Um, obviously, uh, we are talking about a carbon tax in the United States um, for the United States emissions. Um, and the question is, is how do we deal with this in a global context? Does that mean that, that the right solution is no carbon tax? And, and I don't think that that, that that is the right solution. I think that there are um, very reasonable scenarios and under which uh, U.S. leadership uh, could result in other countries following uh, us in establishing uh, similar climate policies. They, in fact, don't need to necessarily have a carbon tax in order for this to work. Um, they do need to have climate policies um, in order for this to work, that's for sure. I think that the carbon tax is the most efficient one, and I do think that the that, that leadership in this front um, including advocacy, could result in other emitting countries pursuing similar policies, particularly, uh, as Nick suggested, if the policies are, uh, are border-adjusted. So on the day that we're recording this, it's a really hot October day. And for the record, record hot. Record hot. And, 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 and I, th I think I might pay a little bit in a tax to, to get some fall weather here. <laughs> so just, just throwing that out there. Um, Alan, wait, 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 so you're also for a carbon tax? No, I'm not necessarily for a carbon <laughs> tax, but I, but, but, I, but I might pay a little bit to get some fall weather, yeah. Um, if that's what we need to call yeah, it. If, if that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm helping you with your marketing. Hold, 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 hold on, Jack. You need to, um, so, Alex, you, you, you mentioned earlier that you, know, you, you came to this from the uh, public finance perspective. And there, there's a tremendous amount of public finance literature that suggests that when you uh, introduce a new tax, that new ta that new revenue just gets spent, right? So government spending tracks with uh, the revenue that's coming in. Uh, there's a very famous paper by Christina and David Romer that implies that if we were to implement a carbon tax or a VAT or a, 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 another tax on top of our current system, again, government spending would, would track with that. When you're thinking about how a carbon tax might make the current U.S. tax code better, uh, how, how are you thinking about that, and, and what additional changes might you think need to be made to, to make it more equitable or um, in, improve the welfare or any of these other metrics that you're thinking yeah. about? Thanks. It's a super question. So um, I advocate and support uh, a carbon tax, but, but not just uh, blindly, not just any carbon tax. And I think that it's very, very important, that it's critically important that that carbon tax be revenue neutral. And so the, at the time in which this policy is put in place, it's 
it's done in a manner by in which the revenues that are expected to be generated from the carbon tax are used to reduce other taxes that are more distortionary. And this is what we would call the principles of basic tax reform, right? The tax reform is generally a revenue-neutral exercise whereby we look, take the current tax code, which is imperfect, and we try to restructure that tax code in a way that's less bad. And I think that a carbon tax is an opportunity for that. Obviously, we had uh, significant tax reform uh, at the end of 2017, we brought down uh, marginal tax rates significantly. Um, those are tax; those are that was a tax reform that that I think is widely viewed as as pro growth. But I think it's also the case that we continue to have an imperfect tax system today that, that taxes savings and discourages investment, and that the revenues from a carbon tax um, can be repurposed um, to reduce those other taxes that are more distortionary. This is referred to as the the double dividend hypothesis: this notion that we could both reduce CO2 emissions and um, have a policy, uh, a tax code that's that's more pro-growth. So where does the incidence of a carbon tax usually fall? Is it on low-income people? Is it on high-income people? Is it on corporations? Who who pays it? So uh, so the tax may be collected by corporations, um, but the incidence does not fall on them. It falls on uh, most likely on consumers, um, is where we would expect the incidence of an excise tax like this to fall. Uh, low-income consumers um, may... Uh, a larger share of their income may be um, uh, consumed by carbon relative to high-income consumers. When we think about how to th- the the equity question, how to make this fair, maybe distributionally neutral, um, I think that's an important concern for lawmakers to to wrestle with. There's one of the nice things I would say is it wouldn't be difficult uh, to to use the revenues in a way that are distributionally neutral or or any other choice. Quite frankly, um, there are policies on the table that are progressive. Um, a dividend proposal where you know every household would get uh, revenues in in equal proportion. Um, that's not a policy that I support. Um, I don't think we need a more progressive tax code, but it's certainly an option that people can consider. Um, if you use the tax to reduce uh, taxes on on labor income, you would see an increase in work, um, and people across the income distribution would uh, would benefit, particularly folks that that rely solely on on wage income for their for their household income. So, in 1993, when um, Congress and the and president at the time, President Clinton, engaged in tax reform, uh, they raised the gas tax, which was regressive. It 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 uh, it uh, disproportionately hit low income people. But then they also increased the EITC, and the EITC is there's both a revenue component to that, but it's all there's also a spending component to that, right? How do you think about making the carbon tax distributionally neutral without increasing spending on the low income population, given that they already pay little to no income tax? Well, it's up to it's in policymakers' hands uh, how, how everything is, but how, yeah, right. How to how to deal with that distributional question? Obviously, you the answer is you can't. Uh, you can't um, offset the the consequence for low income for through the tax code for low income households that pay no income tax unless you use the refundable concepts, the refundable tax policies of the tax code, which, as you're rightly noting, are spending policies. Um, they're outlays. Um, so if you want to address the distributional concern of, the lo- of low income households, you would do it through, in, in the tax code, you would do it through enhanced uh, refundability of, of tax policies, which has pluses and minuses to it, depending on your preferences for redistribution. Um, this is not a policy that doesn't 
affect people. It's a policy that will affect people. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll change the price, the relative price of things, and then people will then respond to those those changes in relative prices. Uh, low-income people will respond, and and middle-income and high-income people will respond in their in the set of goods that they choose to consume. A lot of low-income people don't consume a lot of carbon. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not uh, uh, there's not a hot homogeneous distribution um, within income groups. Um, if you're low income and you get to live in some place in the United States that's got perfect weather every day, you may, uh, uh, you may have a low carbon footprint. Um, and so it's, this is one of the things, you know, the policy is not going to be neutral for everybody, mm-hmm. but I believe that we can reduce emissions and do so in a way that makes the tax code better for us in the aggregate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I, I think that this is just one of the, in just talking through this, I am, um, I, mean, I do budget policy, uh, which has to do with taxes at times, but it's not, I'm not in the weeds like you are in tax policy. And I do, and I am the one non energy person in the room. Um, but just, you know, thinking through this a little bit and, and, and in particular the, the public choice dynamics of it, it seems like one of the, the major problems with a carbon tax is that it's, it's regressive and it's hard politically to make people whole at the back end. Um, and then coming out of that, you, there's this universal problem if, 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 Nick's, if Nick's right and that the real um, CO2 problem isn't necessarily a U.S. or OECD problem, but rather it's a worldwide problem, you're trying to get folks to buy into... A, uh, uh, taking a real hit on an issue that they may uh, not end up making a, a big difference on globally. So, so one quick response. You said that a carbon tax is regressive. What I would say is that climate policies mm-hmm. may be regressive yeah. if depending on how they're structured. So we could have a climate policy through, our, through re- regulatory channels that people are less, that are less transparent than a carbon tax. And those policies could be far more detrimental to low-income households than a carbon tax, especially if you take some of that carbon tax revenue and use it to offset the the consequence on low-income households. I want to build off of that for just a moment because, uh, Paul, while you haven't indicated your views on this, the four of us have acknowledged some climate effect that we are having a discussion about how to address. And and as a conservative, I think that's a very important moment. I mean, I, I think the conservatives and the Republican Party need to determine what our position is on climate because the challenge is that we have this issue coming to us as a political phenomenon, right? The Green New Deal has built up a lot of momentum on the left. We have people like Bernie Sanders claiming they want to spend $16 trillion over 10 years to address climate change. And one of the things that we've got to do is we've got to figure out what is our party's position on this so that we can be at the table. And and Alex Brill has raised a very good point, which is the, the policies that, that, that I support at carbon tax have to be considered in comparison to the alternatives, unless we are just going to ignore this issue. Uh, my counsel is that we have to acknowledge that this is a serious issue. We have to look at the alternatives that are available to us. And and as Alex Brill said, yes, there can be some regressive issues associated with carbon tax, depending upon how you design it. But compared to the regulatory proposals or subsidy proposals, they can be better managed through tax policy than they can be through regulatory policy. Alex, just in quick response to that, I want to clarify my position on this issue. I would acknowledge that it does seem like that it's demonstrably true that the climate changes over time. I do not concede anything, however, on 
what man's contribution to that change is. I'm not saying there's no contribution to that. I'm saying that we have no understanding really with any specificity of what that change is. And that's why I come back to all the time. It's inappropriate to conflate natural with man-made um, climate change, especially as it relates to carbon reduction schemes. Not necessarily as it relates to, uh, to um, ad adaptation policies. That I'm totally with you on. We need to understand what the climate's doing and do something about it if we can at the appropriate level of government if a government response is the appropriate thing to do. But whenever you start getting into carbon reduction, you start having impacts on parts of society who are least capable of paying for it. And I have zero confidence that we'll have any actual impact on that trajectory of climate change that is likely, in large regard, a natural phenomenon. Jack, how would you finance those mitigation strategies, the building of a seawall or whatever, or dealing with the well, DOD's I, I, uh, military budget problems, given the fact that their ships are rising and they can't get under the bridges and things? I think that you can't look at the problems as one thing. I think you look at a specific problem and understand how best to, to address it. So um, one of the things we can do for the, 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 the rising sea levels, to the extent that's a problem, is stop subsidizing Flood insurance. I think that would do a lot of good. Um, as it relates to to the military, I think that we, I think that the military leaders look at long term projections all the time, and they're always thinking about what they need to do things, and that should be part of their 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 budget process. Um, so a seawall. I'm I'm a privatize most things guy. So. Um, I think that a, a privately owned port will be properly maintained to maximize the profits of that port. So um, it just depends on on, on the issue. So I, I think I, look, I think I fundamentally agree with you of the preference of having the the private sector address these issues. I, we're actually seeing that, right? I mean, we are seeing actuarial ind actuarial indexes of increased risks associated with climate change, and so we are seeing insurance companies and the reinsurance industry responding, reducing coverage, moving out of certain industries. Uh, we're seeing this in the mortgage industry, where mortgage companies are beginning to worry about the value of assets thirty years out, particularly in flood-prone areas. So I think the, the private sector will respond. The, the real ch issue for me is should we seek to mitigate some of this change that's occurring? And I, Jack, I respect your perspective that you, you're unwilling to assign a lot of what's occurring to, to man-made. I understand that. I, I will say your position gets to be very hard to sustain given the consensus in the science community. And, and I, I respect your position, but my view is that as a conservative, we need to look out, and even if you're not certain about man's influence on climate, you should begin to look at the risk that man is influencing climate, as the scientists say they are, and begin to think about how you would mitigate that risk if it's real. I mean, just for example, I mean, I do have car insurance, even though I do not plan to wreck the car this afternoon. But I recognize that there's a risk associated with that. And, and one of the things we need to do is we need to start building those policies out simply that res respect the risk of what the scientists tell us is going on. Yeah, building off that, I think this is my problem with the carbon tax and, and most climate policies attempting to mitigate warming is that 
I don't see any policy where you're actually buying much insurance. I think you're paying an expensive premium through higher energy prices, but you're not actually making any meaningful changes to global temperatures or sea level rise. Uh, you know, the National Center for Atmospheric Research developed this handy model called the Model to Assess Greenhouse Gas-Induced Climate Change, and you can plug in different emission reduction scenarios for uh, the United States, uh, OECD countries, non-OECD countries, and even if the U.S. were to reduce their emissions to net zero um, by 2050, you're talking about maybe a few tenths of a degree Celsius of averted warming by the turn of the century and maybe two centimeters of averted sea level rise. And uh, if you get EU on board, it, it, it increases a little bit. Um, and to Alex's point about the U.S. showing leadership through these climate policies, I just don't buy that the rest of the developing world is going to follow suit just because we have some sort of climate policies. I mean, even if you look at China now, I mean, we've led on building and implementing scrubber technologies to reduce sulfur dioxide and criterion pollutants. Those exist. They exist on Chinese power plants right now, but they, turn, they don't turn them on because they want to burn cheap energy. So I'm skeptical that they're going to do something about a colorless, odorless, non-toxic gas if they're not cleaning up their environment with the criterion pollutants, especially when we have a billion people without access to reliable, affordable electricity. So I think there's a real challenge there uh, in terms of trying to implement a global climate policy from a mitigation standpoint based on CO2 reductions, given the fact that the International Energy Agency and, and most economists project that, or most energy economists project that the overwhelming majority of energy needs are going to come and be met by coal, oil, and natural gas. So, just very quickly, two two responses uh, on the your fair criticism on the leadership on banking on on the effects of of leadership. Um, so, it's not certain, and, and, I'll, and I'll concede that for sure. But I but I will say that there are two channels that we should think about. So, one is a, a political economy channel, uh, whereby um, Americans may be able to. Um, implement policies and and get other countries to follow that policy. I think that that is potentially true. I think that there are um, that there are risks associated with that, but there are examples of it being successful in the past, and it's it's one potential channel. The other channel is an economic channel, which was which we will just simply refer to as the effects of innovation. And I think it's very likely, um, perhaps more likely, that a carbon tax in the United States will induce innovation in cleaner technologies um, to, that are, will then be available in the United States because of the higher price of, of coal and, and gas and carbon-intensive products. That innovation will then lower the cost of those alternatives and make those alternatives economically viable in other parts of the world. And so you say, well, why doesn't China just, you know, run their whole economy on wind and solar? Well, wind and solar is, you know, less reliable and more expensive. Uh, the, uh, from, a, from a cost perspective, it's becoming fairly competitive. But, um, but it's not as easy as just burning coal. But one can imagine in, um, in the future that as the result of the opportunity that a carbon tax induces in the United States for, for new innovations, that the cost of these products, that these technologies, these alternative technologies will fall and be economically viable in other parts of the world. But I think you're missing a really important point on that. Yeah, if you tax something, 
then an alternative will emerge. You'll get innovation. I would say distorted capital flows towards the untaxed thing. But then you miss out on all of the innovation that would have occurred in the economy had you not distorted those capital flows. So, yeah, you can say wind and solar or whatever the alternative to fossil fuels might become less expensive, but what we're not what we will miss out on is the opportunity that that capital would have brought us in any other number of areas that would have been far more efficient because you wouldn't have had to apply a distortion on the economy in order to get them. Well, you have to believe that you want to mitigate carbon emissions, that there's a negative externality. You have to, you, you can't, uh, I, so I, I wouldn't advocate, a, um, you know, an orange juice tax or something like that. I'm advocating a carbon tax because I think there's a negative externality so that we are, I believe that we are under-investing um, in this so, research. So let me, let's get straight to the point then. Is it your contention that by a carbon tax you would have less global warming? And, and if that is the case... How do you get there, given what Nick just talked about? So our, my contention is that we are going to have significant global warming, and it is going to become a political and economic imperative that we address it, and we ought to figure out the most efficient means of addressing it. That's where we are, and, and that's where I think leadership comes into this. I think it's very important at this moment in time that the United States settle on and adopt a policy that, one, is as effective as possible at the lowest cost possible price and then sets the example for the rest of the world and that we induce the rest of the world to follow in our And tracks. you think that a carbon tax will result in lower temperatures? Yes, I do. Over How the do you term. conclude that without understanding precisely or even generally what the contribution to global warming is of man versus nature. Greenhouse gas, incre- greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere are leading to climate change. We need to reduce annual emissions and the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere if we want to stabilize the climate. That's very simple. And so what we need to figure out is what's the most effective tool for doing that. And, and really, uh, I mean, look, I believe that there is going to become a political and economic imperative that we do that because of the consequences that we're going to read. If, if One of the things we have to figure out is who is going to set the terms for that policy. Some of the alternative terms being kicked around are crazy. And we have to be able to fight back and say, no, there's a better way of doing this. And there is no better way of doing it than a carbon tax. That's where, I, again, I think I disagree with you. David Henderson just wrote an article why he flip-flopped on a carbon tax for the Hoover Institute And he used to be pro-carbon tax, um, thought it was the most economically efficient, uh, low-cost way to reduce emissions and mitigate warming. Uh, He's since changed his opinion um, based on a few things, essentially, that he read and looked up. He said, one, you know, there was a recent Guardian article that came out this past July that said we could plant a trillion trees for a fraction of the cost of a carbon tax, and it would essentially uh, do the same thing as a carbon tax. And would get around, I think, a lot of, a lot of these um, public choice problems, a lot of the collective action problems that we see with uh, other carbon mitigation policies. Um, and then he also turned to geoengineering, which I know potentially has a lot of unintended consequences, but also could mitigate warming for a small, small fraction of the cost of climate change, and I think is often dismissed as kind of a crazy idea to mitigate warming, but, I mean, it was something that was discussed in um, 
in this article, in Henderson's article, where he referenced in the book uh, Super Freakonomics, um, a, a Microsoft engineer who talked about pumping sulfur dioxide into the high latitude areas yeah. to mitigate warming for $30 million. And if you think about the trillions of dollars, ostensibly, that a carbon tax could cost, not just as taxpayers, but also as energy consumers that really squeeze the production and consumption sides of the economy, uh, I'm not... I'm not nearly confident that a carbon tax is the most effective solution to mitigate warming. So I've, I've read some of the work about geoengineering, and I think we need to be cautious about recognizing that geoengineering does not promise to return the climate to what it used to be. What it suggests is that we can alter some portions of the future climate, but we may see very different a very different climate. So, for example, much more acidic oceans and the consequences on, of that on all of the issues that we rely upon the oceans for sustenance from. Very different uh, uh, humidity concentrations around the world. So, changes in where desertification are and where forests are, changes in rainfall patterns. So, I think, and, and the, so the geoengineering folks, uh, I, I think, do, are going to have an important contribution to make at some point in the future, but it is not a simple, as simple as we are going to be able to use this tool to ratchet this back. The first thing we should try to figure out is how to do as little harm as we possibly can to the climate. So earlier, Alex Brill talked about the political economy of climate change and how to create an environment for international cooperation to do something about the problem should there be agreement that there is a problem. Uh, President Trump uh, pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement uh, early in uh, his administration. Uh, he, he ran on pulling out of Paris, and it was one of the sort of big campaign promises that, that he's touted uh, as, a, as a grand success. Uh, where did Paris go uh, right? Where did where did it go wrong? Where does that generally leave us on the uh, stage of international cooperation? And if there's any other context that um, that's relevant there, especially within regards to the political economy of getting everybody to work together towards some sort of outcome, what does that withdrawal and the the general politics around the withdrawal, um, what what kind of indication does does that give us for success in that arena for going forward? Yes, yeah, so the Paris Agreement was flawed in so many ways, and I think the the process that resulted in it set it up for it to be the flawed product that it was. Uh, the fact that the commitments were not binding, the fact that countries are not meeting those commitments, all of which are very troubling, and and so I think the president has very sound reasons for being to for criticizing the Paris Accord, it is not the sort of international agreement that has to be reached at some point. On the other hand, I recognize that climate change is a global phenomenon, that eventually solutions that we adopt at the national level have to be expanded to the global level. That that is a path that we will have to engage in. I'm an advocate of the United States participating in international agreements setting uh, for climate change going forward. The first thing we have to do is get our own house in order in order for us to do that. I'm not an advocate of the Paris Accord. It has fundamental flaws associated with it. What we need to recognize is that this is a problem we're going to be dealing with for decades, and we're going to have to re-engage globally on it. Yeah, I think a big part of the problem with Paris, as well as previous iterations of the international climate agreements, is that uh, you still have this very big divide between what the developed nations are going to do and what the developing nations are committing to do. And, and essentially, 
this time around in Paris, they had to change the format. Uh, rather than trying to agree ahead of time, they essentially said, no, each country, you come up with your own nationally determined contribution. That can be as uh, loose or as stringent as you want it to be, because as Alex mentioned, there's no repercussions. Um, it's not binding. Um, so set whatever you want, and if you meet it, great. If you don't, that's okay, too. And a lot of these countries, uh, like India, base theirs on um, an emissions ratio based on GDP. And so essentially they could continue to grow their economy, continue to emit greenhouse gas emissions as they, they develop and become um, wealthier and more prosperous and look like they're meeting their, their Paris targets. Uh, Oren Cass, a previous guest on Liberty for All, uh, he had a great line. He said, you know, India's target was essentially like saying, I weigh 175 pounds now, and in three years I have a target weight of 180 pounds. And, and that's essentially was the, the broken promises of Paris, is you weren't actually committing it to anything. And I think for those who are concerned about climate change, Paris probably did more harm than good because it gives off the impression that these countries are doing something when, in fact, they're not. Give something to Yeah. Um, I wanted to change the, 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 the question real quick, or change the, the conversation for a moment. Um, one of the real concerns I have with climate change policy, in addition to those we've already talked about, is the impact it has on poor folks, which we talked a little bit about here um, in the United States, but also around the world. So you, we keep using terms like um, the negative externality of carbon. But when I look historically, the externality of carbon has led to Economic growth and uh, the, the uh, uh, has led to the increased well-being of people. Life expectancy, mortality rates have fallen, education levels, and, absolutely. And, and that's so, energy, not necessarily carbon, but energy has not necessarily carbon. But because carbon is carbon-based fuels are one of the least yep. expensive, most efficient ways to produce energy. Correct. It's there. So I feel one of the things I feel like is it's sort of um, first worldism telling the rest of the world, you don't use carbon um, to lift your lives up, even though we already have. How, what is your view on that? And how do you keep economic growth going in those parts of the world if you were to impose a global carbon tax or some sort of global carbon reduction mechanism. For, for the record, this is one of the criticisms that the Chinese already have of us across the board, right? You got rich doing it one way, and now you're criticizing us for doing it either our way or doing it the same way that you did. Yeah, and look, I, one of the things that differ, differentiates me from sort of leftist environmentalists is that I don't believe in energy deprivation because I agree with you, Jack, about the benefits of energy. And I think one of the, we, we have to keep an eye, our eye on long-term economic growth. That is key to standard of living, not just in the United States and around the world. I, I will also tell you that as I look at global population going to 9 trillion, 10 trillion people, I think this problem gets hard. As I, as I see global population going to 9 billion, 10 trillion, I'm going to do this one again. Check your yeah. time. I don't believe in energy deprivation. I think energy is good, extends life, reduces infant mortality. Economic growth is absolutely dependent upon access to energy. As I see the global population growing towards 10 billion people, I think we're going to see very significant increases in energy. We have to figure out policies that allow energy consumption, access to energy to improve, to increase. 
as we also seek to address greenhouse gas emissions. That's why I think we have to harness the power of the market to do this, because, frankly, I don't know how we're going to provide that much energy going forward. So we have to figure out how to provide a market that incentivizes the sort of behavior that we have to have. I mean, that's that's the, the genius of a carbon tax is that rather than doing the command and control of a set of regulations that will get fixed in time and lock in technologies and all these other sorts of things, we've got to figure out a way to provide energy to all these people because I'm not interested in depriving the rest of the world of energy. So we end every podcast with two questions. Uh, the first question is, and this is probably the easy one for y'all because it, you essentially you probably already answered it, uh, but what is the biggest p- problem in the world where public policy can help and what's the biggest problem where public policy cannot help? I see two very significant problems converging. I think we have to address greenhouse gas emissions in the coming decade, and we have to do so in a manner that allows us to address our long-term fiscal challenges. Because as a fiscal conservative, I am very concerned about trillion-dollar-per-year-plus deficits going forward. And, and so I think those two issues can be addressed together constructively, or they can be addressed separately and contribute to our inability to address either one of them. So the, those are the issues that I think for for U.S. politicians, they need to be focused on in the coming decade. I'd say, and this is going to be weird, I think, so I'm going to try. Uh, I think the answer to both may be climate change, uh, and 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 it's it's one of the reasons that led me to to support a carbon tax um, as a solution. So, so you say, what what can public policy? The biggest problem that public policy can address? Well, a carbon tax is obviously a public policy. Um, it's a it's a clear fiscal tool, um, but it's also it's there's it, there is a very to a very high degree, this is a market-based solution. And so we're, so it's a government policy. The tax is a government policy, but the reaction to the tax is what's going to, to drive the solution. And, and I talked earlier about innovations, you know, new ways of deriving energy that aren't from burning coal or, or gas, but there is a whole host of innovations that I think will be an outgrowth of a change in relative prices from a carbon tax. And that could be everything from how we insulate our homes, you know, windows and walls, to, uh, to you know, how cars are built or operated, um, to, to the fuels that are used themselves or alternatives to those fuels. And so those are all going to be driven by the market. Uh, those aren't going to be driven by the government. And as Alex Flint was, was saying earlier, uh, you know, the, the really dangerous, one of the really dangerous ideas here is that the public policy solution to climate change is uh, a bureaucratic answer where we simply dictate what energy can and cannot be. Uh, in this country and try to dictate to other countries what energy can and cannot be. That is the most costly and probably one of the least effective ways of, 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 of addressing this challenge. But a market-based strategy, I think, has, uh, has prospects and opportunities. Alex Brill from the American Enterprise Institute. Alex Flint from the Alliance for Market Solutions. Thank you both very much. Paul, one of the things we've tried to do with this podcast is bring on different perspectives in a respectful and and robust kind of way, and I think that that we succeeded with that today. Yeah, it was super fun. Thanks for coming in, guys. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thank you, Nick. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Liberty and Justice for All with Jack and Paul. 
Please be sure to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher so that others can find us and look for a new episode every couple of weeks.